Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. Today we have Andy Martinick of Black Star Co-op. Andy is the uh, head brewer there, and uh, we're going to talk about, you know, elements of the the co-op model, what that's like, and you know, kind of the ins and outs of all of that part of of uh, his experience there. But uh, we also will probably delve a little bit into uh, into brewing and the secret sauce behind all of that as well. So, uh, you know, st- stay tuned and hang around. We'll, we'll try to get to that towards the end. But, uh, Andy, uh, thanks for coming out today, man. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Um, so, man, how, how long have you been up at Black Star? Uh, coming up on five years in November. Damn, five years. And uh, how long have you been the head brewmaster? Um, I took over, I want to say, like two and a half years ago. So the original brewer took off another brewer um took over for a short period and then i took over once he left to start so they both went off and started their own breweries after that all right on uh do you know, like what brewers did they start out so of? jeff young was the original one of the original founders of the co-op and okay. the original brewer uh he took off and started blue owl brewing which is on cesar chavez and then chris hamjay took over and uh went on to start Fortat brewing co-op which is another obviously co-op what a what is it that uh, do you is there like a you know what's that kind of commonality in the in the brewery world that kind of makes the co-op the optimal model can you even do you, do you have any clue in on that oh i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's the optimal model but i think that it, it's a so black star was pretty revolutionary in its in its inception in 2006 it started in the backyard of um you know uh, in austin here and that's when the co-op was actually formed and then the actual brick and mortar establishment was opened in late 2010 okay so we've been open for about seven years now but um it's it was one of the first uh co-op brew pubs um first member owned and democratically self-managed brew pub in the world something we're pretty proud of and oh wow yeah a lot of revolutionary ideas kind of really uh really started the this little wave of uh co-ops opening up breweries and it 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 works for many business models but i think right now with the you know this huge explosion of breweries in the past 10 years that naturally you're going to see more of those opening up right man it's crazy how that industry has changed it's funny it's like all my dad who's you know he's like born in 60 so he you know he's in his 50s whenever he comes up to austin and he's like tries to order a beer you know, he wants like a draft or oh, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. give me a Bud Light or sure. something. Yeah. One of those, one of those good <laughs> and it's like, you know, I'm taking to some places that, you know, they generally, you know, it's like they have, you know, Austin usually caters to like the craft, the craft scene a lot more obviously <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> than yeah. what he's used to. So that's kind of a funny little, little thing that I notice. But uh, definitely, I mean, on this podcast, I'm all about um, democratizing the workplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, we'll never be really free if we're not free in the workplace. So I'm a big advocate of the co-op mm-hmm. idea, you know, as at least some some way to bring about that and, and, you know, have people with the ability to determine, you know, their own working environment and making decisions. And so I'm, I'm really interested to hear uh, about that, about your experiences and what that's like. Yeah, this will be interesting then because I've got both sides of it. You know, I, I uh... I see it, there there are pros and cons to any business model naturally, and uh, the co-op is no exception. So uh, it's it's a it's it's a super interesting thing that I never thought I'd be doing, but I'm uh, I'm pretty glad that I fell into it. Right? Yeah, I'm trying to think outside of the co outside of the brewery world. I don't I can't even I couldn't name one. Uh, Wheatsville's a co-op. I guess that's true. Um, I mean, there's tons of housing co-ops here in Austin. Um, I mean traditional agriculture or farming co-ops or you know that's a that's kind of where the cooperative business model like to to you know call a spade a spade we're doing the cooperative model in a brew pub and it's really nice and awesome to do this in this really progressive town uh, that is austin texas but the you know the cooperatives that were formed many many hundreds of years ago were out of necessity so you know you and your collective group of people that live in rural areas need to come together and purchase large amounts of grain in order to you know to go about your business or, or your crop crop right. share and then you sell it off and the profits are then distributed. So co-ops have a, a really, really long history, um, which I'm not extremely well versed on. But yeah, I, obviously I'm not either. Otherwise yeah. <laughs> I would have yeah. been, I would have been able to speak to that, but I, I mean, it definitely makes sense to benefit from that kind of economy of scale. 
uh, particularly like the agricultural example you brought up. But let's just uh, let's go ahead and delve right in. Like, tell us, I guess, without do you, what kind of prompting would I would I need <laughs> to get this conversation rolling? Even I'm trying to think. I, I mean, it there are many different aspects of it. So I think it, one thing initially could be the you know talk about democratizing the workplace so we are a member owned i guess describing the model might be beneficial yeah there we go <laughs> so, that's a good starting uh, black star co-op is a, a brew pub but it's a, a community-owned brew pub so we're member owned we have over 3500 member owners who have purchased a share of the cooperative um and we are worker run and self-managed so we've got you know a workers assembly of i think it's like 26 people right now that run the day-to-day -day operations and then we have a board of directors that um we have nine board of directors and they kind of oversee and make sure that we adhere to our ends policies and the, the kind of the values that we set out to achieve as a business when it was founded. And so it's a lot of moving parts. It's, it's a really complicated system, but it, it does work. And we've proven that for seven years. So, um, and aside from, from the cooperative aspect and values of, of this business, we also are, you know, we pay people a fair living wage. Uh, provide healthcare and dental dental benefits to uh, you know people in the service industry, which is unprecedented. We don't work for tips, so everybody gets paid a fair living wage, hourly wage. Um, source food uh, locally and sustainably. Uh, try to be as green as possible. We do a lot to give back. Like right now, we're do we're going to donate a dollar for every uh, house beer that we sell over the next week to the the hurricane relief funds. Um, that are uh, going on in Houston, Texas right now. So yeah, really like socially conscious organization on top of this democratically self-managed workplace where the employees are, are running the day-to-day -day and have input um, in, in how things are run. That's awesome, man. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how the board works. Like are these people that are, do they actually work in the day-to-day -day operations or are <laughs> they kind of just like, like a, a typical sort of board that... Kind of, except they're not, uh, they're, it's a volunteer board. So they're, they're elected by the membership, they're not paid. Um, so they they don't work on the day-to-day -day operations. There's a there's a separation between the board of directors and the actual workers assembly. And then we have a an employee that is called the board staff liaison. They're basically the, you know, they, they bring information to and from the board, uh, from the workers assembly. And so they, they monitor and oversee our policies, our end, ends policies that say, hey, we should be doing this, are we doing this, are we in compliance, and, and making sure that we as the workers assembly are driving the business forward in a way that the members want to see it driven forward. So they're a good accountability um, for the workers assembly. And then, like I said, they're, but they're also um, unique uh, groups of people. So the workers assembly are not doing board stuff and the board people aren't coming and scraping dishes for <laughs> service. <laughs> Right. Okay. That that sheds a little bit of light on that. I guess let's talk about how how does pay get sort of meted out? Like, what is that? What is that discussion like? Um, so, our our pay structure has always been kind of a weird thing where we we're all paid hourly. So it's across the board. Everybody's hired on at the same wage. Um, there are opportunities to increase your wage and, and kind of go in, in other directions where some people, maybe they don't want to take on these responsibilities and therefore they don't get paid the extra wage, but everybody for the most part starts off at a base hourly wage and then, uh, gets raises based on, uh, you know, certain completion of, uh, tasks and education within the workplace. And, you know, uh, extending your responsibilities, like I just mentioned. Um, but for the, for the long, uh, a long period of time when the co-op was formed, it was mostly based on uh, tenure and, and, and workers voting uh, to increase your wage. So we had a system set up where you've been here for a year, you're evaluated twice throughout that year, your workers then say, are they, you know, are we voting them to this next wage? And yes or no. And then that, that wage is just then uh, given to the person if they, if they get to the yes. I'm wondering, what do you, how do you guys, do you know even how you would set that wage? Because I feel like it'd be sort of a tougher environment to determine, you know, how much do we pay someone? But I guess if you've got that long-standing history to base it on, it's a, that it's, certainly helps. But it's like, how do you determine what the market 
sort of pay structure is going to be like and you know what I mean? Yeah, as far as the market's going to, so yes, it's a, it's a complicated thing and it's one that we struggle with probably one of the biggest issues we struggle with. At the Makes co-op. sense. Um, so as far as comparing it to other other markets, uh, since we are primarily a restaurant brew pub, it's unprecedented. So like people in the front of house traditionally make two thirteen an hour and then they get paid tips. Well, we pay an hourly wage and we provide health benefits. So it's hard to it's hard to compare it to the market, but we always pride ourselves on providing a or giving an opportunity to a worker uh, to have a living wage and a living wage is calculated. Um, it, it's an actual calculation that your income cannot um, be less than uh, 30 or 30% of your income going to housing and then, and then that average housing of like a one bedroom apartment okay. in Austin, Texas. Gotcha. So right now it's skyrocketing. Right. And so it's really hard. Oh, to, man, that's rough. Yeah. And so it's really hard to um, adhere to that. Although we, we, we try our best to do that. And um, so, yeah, with the, the housing market being out of control in Austin, Texas, it really pushes the upper limits of what a business can do. And we're like the amount of money that we spend on remuneration, which is a category for like the wages, the benefits, the discounts, all the things that we provide to our employees is, I hate to keep using this word, but it's unprecedented. It's <laughs> within the industry, it's not even comparable. So we, we put a lot of value into that. And so we say it's okay to pay this much money to our employees because we value that a lot. Um, but you know, if we get an outside consultant to come in and be like, Hey, look at our books. Blah, blah, blah. They'll be like, Oh, you, you pay people too much money. That's, that's what, that's what's going on here. It's like, oh, God. so it's a, uh, you know, you, you have to weigh the values of the business with, um, what's actually sustainable as far as running a, a business. Right. Oh man. God. It's like, that's what I, that's kind of like one of the fundamental elements of capitalism that is just, you know, it's like we're paying workers the least amount that the market will bear yeah, which I think is just kind of a fundamental, fundamentally shitty relationship, if you're on the labor end <laughs> yeah. of the deal. So well, here here's another thing that really is strange about it is that, you know, probably in a in a decent restaurant in Austin, Texas, you're you're probably not making more money working at Black Star as a front of house employee as far as your actual take home pay because some people you know you're walking away with three hundred dollars a night cash. I mean, that's crazy. Nobody could pay that wage for, you know, 17 people working the floor, but we provide a steady hourly, uh, a steady job, uh, consistent pay on an hourly basis and the benefits on top of it. So the benefits, the way that we calculate the the living wage now, we don't calculate the uh, amount of money that the co-op pays for healthcare and dental. Some living wage calculations do that and that like drastically reduces the hourly wage. So let's say the quote unquote living wage in Austin is $15 an hour. And let's say we pay that to somebody, but then we provide them with, you know, 50% of their healthcare costs are covered by the cooperative. That's another, you know, 150, 200 bucks a month, depending on your situation. That's a significant amount of money. So if you were to calculate, calculate that into the living wage equation, then it drops that hourly wage. And that's something we've also struggled with is like, which, you know, do we realize this as just the hourly wage? Um, or do we calculate the benefits that we provide to people? And as well. Now, do you guys allow staff to accept tips, or do you f- totally forego that entirely? No, no, no tips whatsoever. Any tips that people leave or like kind of slide on the bar and walk out before somebody can hand it back to them uh, gets donated to like Austin Pets Alive and uh, other charities. Gotcha. Because I was thinking, like, if you guys would allow tips and just distribute that money equally or what have you or you know vote vote oh okay so it's illegal so yeah that's that's one of the tricky things is um changing to a tipped model and maybe this is where this (laughs) conversation can get pretty uh pretty uh interesting and kind of not so nice (laughs) is that the the tipped model for better or for worse applied to this business could could make it super profitable Right. But then you have this inequity within the workplace, which the tip model is to me, my the reason I enjoy working at Blackstar and I like that we don't accept tips so much is that it it gets rid of both the front of house and customer interaction, the awkwardness of me paying your wage, subsidizing your wage 
and it gets rid of the front of house, back of house dichotomy that's always right, been. Right? Yeah. If you've ever been a server and a server's walking home with 250 bucks a night and dude in the kitchen that's working for $8 an hour is like, I just bust my ass for 10 hours and I'm making eight bucks an hour and you're going home with like $20 an hour. It's a, uh, that relationship is really, really toxic. And so although that model can make a business seem to be uh, more profitable because you're, you're subsidizing wages with, with tips, it's, it's just a weird, it's a weird deal. It's um, yeah, something that, that, that totally makes sense though. Um, I didn't even think about that. So I'm glad you brought, uh, pointed that out. Um, man. But uh, what I think is cool too is though, actually, I actually like the hourly pay rate mm-hmm. because, you know, obviously in the corporate world, it's like you end up doing the, uh, you know, the salary thing and then you end up, you know, if you do overtime or whatever, if you're working 80 hour weeks, it's like, right. you know, that you really kind of <laughs> burnt out. You're like, man, I'm just getting exploited for the salary or whatever it is. Exactly. Yeah. It's like they've got that can kind of pressure you to really go well above and beyond. But with hourly, it's like you're paying me. You know what I mean? It's like I, yeah. if, if I'm working longer hours, you're going to pay me money, which I, I, I definitely like that. I get paid hourly myself. So sure. I'm all about that. Yeah, it's a... <clears throat> Paying people is a, it's an extremely tricky conversation to have because you're talking about what is a person worth for their time. And, you know, when you come down to it and you're, you're reevaluating as we have for, for many years, reevaluating our pay system and seeing like what, what structure works best for us. If you were to start from, you know, ground zero, your ideas now after being open for seven years and seeing what happens are completely different from the beginning where everybody starts off at the same level. Like everybody's getting the same raises at the same time. Whereas, you know, you have somebody who works in the business team who is a essentially an an accountant that could easily get a job somewhere else that is, that is paid significantly more. And then you've got somebody that's working on the line in the kitchen that's been there for a while that, you know, may be making a lot more than, than they could go get in the industry. So it's a, it's a struggle, but it, I think it it allows people to to really sit back and be like, "Hey, you know, we're all in it together. We're we're working towards the same goal." And while, you know, like I, I myself, if I were to get paid more somewhere else, that's not enough of an incentive for me to leave because I love this place so much. I, I and also the benefits are like you've got to think about that. It's a significant uh, portion of money if you were to have to pay that out of pocket. So. Uh, it's good to have these conversations and be aware of those. So tell me a little bit about the decision-making process. So do you guys have a kind of, I'm assuming you have regular meetings to talk about whatever. Yeah. <laughs> kind of clue us in on, on what that's like. And I guess you, you don't really have to go into like the super details, but sure. just kind of tell us how, a little bit about the operation side and how all of that element gets meted out. Okay. Um, so a little bit more about the structure we have, I I mentioned the board, I mentioned the WA, which is the workers assembly within the WA, we have, uh, the TLC, the team leader council. So I am the, the beer team leader. There's a pub team leader, a kitchen team leader, and a business team leader. So we have four teams. Each has appointed a leader, voted on a leader. So all democratically run. So the team leaders meet at weekly and then the entire workers assembly meet monthly um, where, you know, if we have a proposal to change an aspect of the business, we will submit that proposal. It gets vote, vetted by the Workers' Assembly, and then they vote on it democratically. And, uh, you know, we talk about it, every issue as far as, you know, social media to what's going to be on the menu next month. So um, most everything is pretty pretty open and, uh, and discussed on, on every level of the, the Workers' Assembly. Man, that's awesome. I can't imagine being able to elect someone to speak on my behalf right. at, at work. <laughs> like, what, yeah. what a foreign concept, but it seems like such a fundamental element of our lives. And, you know, I was, I've been thinking the past few days after, you know, kind of texting with you back and forth. It's like, you know, let's say you're getting, let's say you're getting eight hours of sleep a night, right? Uh, you know, that's 56 hours of your week that you're sleeping. Well, what's next is the f- at least minimum 40 hours that you're putting in at your job. So this is almost, you know, aside from sleeping, this is what you're focusing your life on. Oh, totally, yeah. <laughs> you know, and this is your biggest commitment. And you have absolutely, you know, you have very little say in your work environment, yeah. you know, what that's like. And 
obviously, you know, stress, um, pay, working conditions. I mean, you have zero say. Yeah. So I'm a. This will this will be a, an interesting point to touch on. Is I am. I, I've seen I've seen both I've seen a very you know traditional capitalistic top down um, hierarchical hierarchical That's you got it, it man right? yeah. you nailed it man <laughs> um, <laughs> business model and then I've seen the cooperative business model um, the yes obviously those feelings are are true in, in a lot of businesses especially businesses that that don't have strong leaders that are very um, uh, they're demanding. They're they're not the good leaders. They don't they don't ask input of people. So yes, that's a negative. But also in the cooperative structure, uh, one of the downsides to the democratic process is the number of voices. Right, everybody's opinion is awesome and it's great to have. But when you're trying to make decisions, it can really slow things down. So that's something that we've struggled with is getting moving forward with certain things. Uh, you know, you're let's say I want to I want to propose a change to. I don't even know. I want to propose uh, that we purchase a new refrigerator, and it's $2,000. Okay, so it's a large purchase. So I need to write a proposal, submit it to my, the workers, um, have the workers vet it over email, which may or may not happen <laughs> within a certain number of hours, um, have them respond with a vote or any comments, review it, accept it, or whatever, and then that thing gets purchased. So that can be some of the, the drawbacks of the democratic process. It's a little bit slower. Um, but you do get things vetted a little bit more. You know, there's times where that's been absolutely a saving grace where somebody's had an idea, wants to pull the trigger on it, and then everybody looks it over and is like, well, what if, what if we don't do that? <laughs> what, what if the outcome is worse than you think? Um, so so I, I definitely see the benefit, or I know the benefit of it. It's just uh, it's always interesting to point that out because that, that large a, a group of people, there's bound to be, you know, three different opinions and uh, getting to consensus can sometimes be tricky, but I'm definitely behind this model for the workplace. But like you're pointing out, it's like the efficiency. I mean, you're never going to be as efficient as a hierarchical organization, right? Right. (laughs) At least in terms of decision making. Yeah. Speed and, and, you know, so it's like, how do you, how do you compete with that and stay a viable (laughs) enterprise? Man, it's tough. And especially in this market and uh, you know, what, touch on the restaurant industry already a little bit but we're also a brewery so we're in austin texas where there's over 40 breweries now and it's become extremely competitive we're also a restaurant which is seen like the worst um has has seen like sorry (laughs) really poor performance across the country for the last year or so right and a lot of people don't know that because they're like oh my gosh there's so many restaurants it's awesome it's great their restaurants are, are really struggling right now. And so both of those combined in a market that's getting saturated uh, with breweries and in a market that is oversaturated with restaurants, no doubt in Austin, Texas, you can go anywhere around here within a mile and choose any cuisine you want. Right. Um, it's really, really necessary as a business owner to be able to pivot and make drastic changes about your business. You need to change your service model. You need to change your, your cuisine. You need to do these things. With the cooperative, it's it's much harder to make those big sweeping changes. So that's something we've seen where it's like, well, we really need to do something. We need to do something to to uh, say increase sales or, or um, do better marketing. And sometimes that can get uh, hung up a little bit longer than it would in like a regular traditional right. capitalist uh, environment. So, um, but it's all like I said. It's also you know it's a catch twenty two because sometimes you're like, man, we need to do this. Let's go on, pull the trigger, backfires, and it's a it's a poor decision. Where if it had been vetted by your coworkers, it might not have been such yeah, a poor decision. That's true. Oh, damn, man, that's interesting that you bring up that point about uh, how restaurants are doing mm-hmm. because I feel like that's got to be some type of an in- economic indicator. You know what I mean? Like that's. That's discretionary income, right? That people are not spending, and in a place like Austin, Texas, you know what I mean. That's it's, kind of a canary in the coal mine sort of kind type of, of yeah, a feeling. It's, it's you know? a really weird thing because we get so we get obviously being in a restaurant, we've seen there, there's two ways to look at it, and I don't know if you heard about Black Star in January. We put out this call to action. It was all over the place. It got leaked to social media. Basically, we we sent out a letter to our members owner member owners saying, "Hey, we're in a really really tough cash position." Could y'all come in and patronize us and help get us out of this? 
that got leaked. Social media, everybody in Austin came out. It was crazy. Busiest month we've ever had. And nice. so we had a really, really great turnout. But it's really, I think it's really easy to look at that and be like, oh, well, you know, X, Y, and Z are failures of your business, things that, that the consumer doesn't like. And granted, there are many of those with Blackstar, and I'm not shying away from that. But you could point to those things and be like, that's why you're not doing well. It's really hard to come back and be like, yes, those are true, but the industry is also doing pretty poorly. So most restaurants are not doing great right now. And it affects us a lot more because we pay people so much. Yeah. So we don't have the avail uh, ability to, you know, lay off or a downsize a staff of 20 people getting paid 213 an hour. We've got eight front of house people. Uh, so, and we're not paying them 213 an hour. So it's like, we're still paying wages. Um, right. so it even though revenue's down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it hits us a little bit harder. And then when you're looking at that data from Blackstar in particular, and then data from, uh, like nationwide statistics, it's interesting to, to kind of deduce what's going on. And it's like, why are people not spending as much anymore? Is it because of the election? I mean, there was definitely a blowback from that. I know people were not going out, especially in Austin as much after the election, everybody was upset. Um, but yeah, it's could it could be a canary in the coal mine, um, but hopefully things turn around. <laughs> right. You know, I, I I would I'd like to say I have the answer, but I don't. I think that's part of running a business. You gotta. gotta yeah, I mean the oh man, the bar and restaurant <laughs> industry, and you guys are kind of both are like the. I mean, I think like seventy five percent of restaurants and bars fail within like a First year or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So it's just insane, but you guys are dealing with the <laughs> the difficulties of both of those elements, not to mention that, but also since <laughs> the fact that you actually pay people a living wage mm -hmm. compounds oh yeah all of that yeah. when you're you know when when you're competing against these <clears throat> other uh, you know traditionally run businesses mm -hmm. very interesting I mean luckily, I think the Austin market is one that will support this type of a an arrangement or this type of a model um kind of have had a serious uh, similar experience myself because I do rideshare driving um and so you know when Lyft and Uber left mm -hmm. you know Ride Austin the nonprofit ride sharing company stepped up to the plate and you know they were paying people you know drivers I mean the the equivalent in that space of I wouldn't call it a living wage necessarily but you know competitive and it was vastly more competitive because they're paying the drivers you know it's like they're taking their operating costs and what have you marketing blah 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 but the drivers you know i was getting 30 to 40 percent more fare money on a single ride wow versus obviously whenever lyft and uber came back you know that totally they Kills it. yeah they yeah. destroyed the market because uber in particular has you know massive amounts of investor capital that they're burning through and they're subsidizing these below market rides to gain market share and get their name out there. Yeah, I actually watched a video on YouTube and like that's the you know, the ultimate the, the peak of information, but uh <laughs> I watched a video on YouTube basically calculating out how uh a lot of people just lose money driving for Uber. Like, right. Like, yeah, and the depreciation repairs I mean gas and time and yeah, it's a it's interesting. I've heard some people say it's uh, equivocated to basically selling depreciation of your of your vehicle. Yeah. But you know what I mean? I, it's kind of like, it's kind of a raw deal, but um, you know. It's some like people <laughs> get like, they rent cars and do this. Oh yeah, do you I know can't that? imagine. They like, they'll least... go and they'll, they'll rent a car for um, like a week and they'll drive Uber and then the depreciation isn't doesn't affect them. Yeah, they pay a little bit higher up front, but they're it's spread out over a certain number of days and so it's not a I guess they're making money that way, but damn, I that I, was pretty interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Um man, I feel like I don't do it enough. Like I just do enough a small amount to where it's like I'm not putting a shitload of extra miles on my car. Mm -hmm. And the flexibility of it's just it's worth it. It's kind of like fuck it. <laughs> just get a little extra. You know what I mean? It's it. like I'll 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 leverage my Eventually, I'll get a a job where I can, you know, pay all my bills yeah. <laughs> with one job. <laughs> Fingers crossed, right? Yeah. Uh, so that that's the hope. But yeah, man, um, that was a real real bummer. I was kind of pissed off <laughs> that that happened. But what are you gonna do? You yeah, know, it's 
they they came back full force and now everybody forgot about you know right austin and fasten and seriously straight uh, back to uber and lyft fair folded up within like a week and i remember uh right austin said they sent out an email after maybe three or four five days that ridership had dropped off like 60 percent or something Jeez. just within the first few you know five or six days crazy. of them being in town um kind of kind of really disheartening yeah it's crazy that brand loyalty i mean their apps are like extremely well developed and are super user friendly but i mean just that loyalty to those brands ever it's synonymous in america it's like lyft and uber those are the ride shares that you use well it's it, and i i think that you know the difference being the rideshare model you know the consumer is a lot more price sensitive than like the black you know in your black black star co-op market that you guys are in you know what i mean i think there's enough the whole craft kind of movement with breweries and what and microbrewing and all that you know what i mean there's like there's a element of culture there to where you're like you're willing to pay for a, more of a premium you know what i mean yeah. it's not as price the consumer isn't price conscious right, in the same right. you know what i mean they're not as sensitive you to can that justify paying more for something you perceive as quality versus I need to get home because I'm drunk. Right. It's like <laughs> the same fucking guy is going to drive me. Like, why Why would I want to pay yeah. this guy another five bucks right. when I don't have to? So, yeah. But, you know, obviously, again, the working, the workers are the ones getting fucked mm -hmm. while the uh, while the board of directors are, you know, waiting on the, well, I guess Uber's not profitable yet. I don't, I don't think Lyft is either. So, <laughs> I guess there's always that. But. <laughs> I guess that's sign of success right on being profitable okay you were saying earlier that i think that you guys have over three thousand yeah over yeah. 3500 member owners so what are what are these other member owners consist of like they're obviously these aren't people that are working for you guys how does yeah how no, does that work it, anything i mean it's everybody any like anybody can become a member owner as long as you're over 21 so it's 150 dollars one-time only fee to become to have one share of the cooperative that get uh, gives you a vote for the board of directors which we have an election coming up soon um it gives you a vote for the board of directors it uh it allows you to get certain benefits like we get four dollar rational house beers uh basically our mainstays all the time all day every day to member owners something that we just changed because that was like something that was lacking was like a tangible monetary benefit of joining the cooperative so now we have that um but yeah there you know there's people in australia that are member owners there's people in you know that have never been to black star that are member owners so it's it's a extremely diverse group of of people okay I, but I, I could kind of see that'd be cool if you know i was a patron of of the uh black star and you know wanted to do something like that yeah that, i could see that being a pretty pretty cool little benefit yeah i mean if you if you're a consistent patron of the brew pub becoming a member pays literally pays for itself now uh whereas before it was dollar fifty pint or two dollars off house beers on tuesdays and so i mean even if you did that frequently enough you could you could pay for itself but now with like four dollars that's a dollar fifty off all the rational beers and that's you, know, you come in a hundred times or if you drink a hundred <laughs> beers, how many times, how many beers do you drink in a year to, at a bar? Right. Yeah. Interesting. So what are the other drawbacks or are there really any drawbacks other than the sort of, you know, at times the inefficiency of having the democratic process in the workplace? Like what are, what kind of other situations does that create for you guys? <clears throat> well, we, there, I mean, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of things, like little <laughs> things probably that that come to mind. I think obviously the biggest one that we talked about is the 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 effectiveness and the the uh, the, the speediness of making like large decisions is is sometimes inhibited. Um, you know, having having multiple views on on how to do things is sometimes just a little disheartening. Um, if you're like somebody that presents something and wants to, you know, I have this vision, I think this would be really great for the restaurant. And then like three people shoot it, shoot it down. That can be disheartening. Yeah. But then also you can shoot down ideas that may not be great. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's a little bit more, uh, you know, that evens itself out. But, um, 
the finan- financial aspect of running this business is really difficult. I mean, paying people a living wage is not easy. Like we talked about earlier, when it, the, the market waxes and wanes and, you know, sales aren't great, it really affects us. Um, you know, we're not, we're not super profitable. We don't have like a ton of money uh, surplus that we can just go out and say, oh man, we need new brewery tanks. Let's go buy brewery tanks. Um, so it's a little bit different. So it's a lot slower growth a lot slower um decision making but i think ultimately it 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 comes down to the people that are running it like right now we've got a a few people that are pretty pretty passionate about making this place you know making some some drastic changes doing some things that are like okay let's let's get the ball rolling on this so that's really good um but if you don't have that buy-in, if you don't have participation in the democratic process and it's just like i'm clocking in clocking out type of deal it can be a little disheartening too because you know you've got this workplace that <clears throat> is truly awesome to work for like working at black star has been by far the best job experience i've ever had and i've learned more there than i have it in any school that i've ever <laughs> gone to um but it's not not recognizing that and not buying into it can can you know be frustrating for people that are bought into it or it's like right. man you you don't realize how awesome this is, I guess. Um, and the people that originally founded the the cooperative are, are, in fact, the last founder, Johnny, who's the kitchen team leader, is leaving next week after, you know, being a part of this cooperative for, what is that, 11 years. And, um, you know, all that history, all that, all that um, historical information is now, like, leaving with him, yeah. whereas the people that are there, the oldest employee has been there for five and a half years, six years. So it's like we just know the operations of the business. Like that is our experience with the cooperative. We were right. in the backyard in the <laughs> beer socials, drinking beer with all these these member owners and these friends and trying to start this really progressive brew pub. Now you got people that are like, I love this place for what it is as a business and now I wanna I wanna make it better. So it's a different perspective, but I think it's still really cool to have people that are engaged. Definitely. Um now I kinda wonder, you know, what the political landscape is like, because it feels like it could get a lot more contentious and like I think conflicts, you know, it's like in the in the sort of office environment, you know what I mean? It's kinda like there is like a lot of solidarity amongst kind of the workers in the sense of like it's kind of the workers versus like management or or what have you. Right. But in this case it's like it seems like there's a lot more potential for conflict between just the work just the workers themselves. I well here interesting because i would say the opposite really there's less potential for conflict okay. but that's one of the other problems that i failed to mention is uh accountability so holding people accountable is a lot more difficult because of your friends right you know, you're, you're running this business together you after the bar or after work you're gonna stay at the bar and drink a couple beers and hang out and there's no managers right there's there's no authority except for the the uh, autonomous teams and you know the team leader has a little bit more authority but essentially there's no manager. So if you're holding somebody accountable, it's a collective process. Hey, this person is out of line. They're doing this thing. Let's collectively vote and discipline this person. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit trickier to, to, to hold people accountable. But I would say that that probably reduces the amount of like shitty workplace interactions where it's like, Hey, you suck. I'm tired of your attitude. You're fired. Right. And it's more like, Hey, these are some issues. Like, let's figure it out. Let's get better. No, you're not getting better. Well, let's let's try it again. No, you're not getting okay. Well, now you're tired. But <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, the amount of, I mean, those conversations are always difficult, right? Whenever you're giving somebody feedback. <laughs> yeah. In that case, man. Yeah. So I've definitely, all... I guess, would help your, like, those conflict resolution skills have to be pretty sharp. Yeah, and that's that's the thing is who's the nobody's the HR guy. Right. So nobody is versed or well versed in these matters. And I actually dealt with something today. Um, and I, uh, I don't do this often. I'm pretty like I don't I don't like conflict or or like making things uncomfortable. I like everybody to be happy. But the the reason the democratic process and discipline is is so nice is that I had a conversation with somebody today about something that was not we didn't feel that it was appropriate and we didn't feel that like they were doing what was expected of them and we talked it out and I saw their perspective on it and was like I totally understand your point of view and I totally understand why you think that my point of view is skewed 
Uh, and so, you know, it gets resolved that way as opposed to being like, hey, I'm your boss. You're fired or I'm your right. boss and you're reprimanded and you there's no you're not explaining your side. You're just getting you're being reprimanded because of what I'm seeing. So it has its benefits, too, as far as discipline's concerned. Interesting. Man, I've, I feel like it would be uh, I feel like the capitalists have such a, a good point. It's like, man, you're just not going to be able to compete as efficiently with and you know as if we went to this model widespread you know what i mean like if there's a capitalist system out there somewhere that you're competing against it's just not going to make this model economically viable mm -hmm. and uh, you know I mean, and uh, like i said in, in sort of a large scale it's kind of like you know in certain niche places it'll it'll work within the capitalist system mm -hmm. but um you know what i mean it's like if all of america went to co-ops but china and India or who you know whatever world economy is still capitalist you know what I mean they're going to just destroy you right <laughs> well so another thing about that um this is going to it's kind of a roundabout way to get back into the restaurant industry but the cooperative model let, let's not even say cooperative model the 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 model that the we, democratic the, model the right. democratic model and and the model where we tr have fair worker treatment where we pay living wages or we pay decent hourly wages and we provide benefits that was initially in the restaurant industry that is that was kind of unprecedented because everybody makes 213 an hour cooks get paid eight, 10 bucks an hour whatever the case well now it's kind of come full circle and the wage that we pay people that are working in back of house is now comparable to wages that are being paid in other um, kitchens. I mean, in other kitchens, uh, specific, even specifically in Austin, because there's a cook shortage. So you talk about you know different industries and economies. There's a there's a shortage of employees that want to work in kitchens. Therefore, people yeah, are paying more wages money are going up. for people be, to get quality employees, and therefore, our wages are now not as as, competitive, high, as yeah. competitive as they used to be and so it, it's kind of interesting where that we don't need to be a co-op and we don't need to like we don't need to do all these progressive things to pay these these competitive wages now because the market's dictated that it needs to be that way because right. people don't want to do it so it's really weird because you think like man these these wages are great and these benefits are great and we'll just get like really quality people that are passionate and super into the model and now the market changes, you know, seven years later, and you're like, fuck, everybody's <laughs> doing it now because they don't have employees. They don't have quality employees to, to pull from. They have to raise raise wages. So that's kind of, it's an interesting part of the capitalist model right. where it's like, man, it's recorrecting in uh, in a weird time. I mean, I guess that's, that actually kind of speaks to the, you know, the efficiency and the efficacy of, of markets. And, you know, I'm not entirely, I'm not like entirely anti-market in every situation but i just think that you know like i was listening to uh peter schiff on joe rogan the other day yeah 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 I watched <laughs> and he's just like the total like the free market you know it's like government is doing this and you know anytime the government's involved it's, it's a terrible thing and i, I just don't I don't I he, think that's kind of a naive. I was like he's a getting bit so on the, pissed <laughs> on the extreme side but i also really agree with a lot of his 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 beliefs right like i I, I would say I'm probably more conservative financially and a little bit more liberal uh, socially, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, so, absolutely. Like, as far as, you know, I, I mean, that's a perfect example right there. Like the market corrects itself and wages go up, whatever. But that also means that there's something else going on. Like, right. like there's some other aspect of the market which is not flourishing. And, and now you've got like the, the you see other restaurants uh, raising the, the, um, not minimum wage, but they're they're paying people living wages or fair wages. Let's say people are getting paid more fair um, wages, and and some people are even moving to the non tip model. Well, they're pretty quickly seeing that that gets really expensive, <laughs> and so it's a uh, you know there's definitely certain industries, restaurants specifically, that I like. I don't think an outback steakhouse or somebody that has like thirty front of house people could pay some could pay them a living wage. Like right. I just don't think that could happen. And I wish it wasn't true. I wish that that was the case. But 
you raise prices 20% to compensate for that. Yeah, you're going to lose the business. The employees, or I'm sorry, the uh, the customers don't see it like that. And it's really, I mean, it's so ingrained in the United States personality that this tip thing is going to be so hard to shake. And I really think we should because, like I said, I think that dynamic between a customer and the employee and then the front of house versus back of house, I just think that dynamic is so toxic. But it, it's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah, people are fucking weird about their food, too. It's like when people go to a restaurant or whatever, it's like they think they can just they kind of like there's this entitled attitude of like, I can just treat this person like shit. You know what I mean? It's Be, weird because you dictate their way. It's fucking weird. It's super weird. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I I, I see what you're, it definitely is like a toxic relationship in that environment. And I just think it's bullshit that people can be such dicks you know what i mean it's we like, get people it's funny we get people that are kind of assholes about not about us not accepting tips at blackstar <laughs> right Some people that are just like super self-righteous like oh, i've worked in the industry for 20 years i'm leaving my money right, right here and it's like <laughs> all right man cool go for it <laughs> you don't have to not be upset about it but right. yeah a lot of people get kind of upset about because they can't yeah they can't compensate they can't that makes sense like industry folks mm-hmm Oh, that's interesting. But yeah, I hate that dynamic where it's like, oh man, this person didn't bring my water in the first 30 seconds. You're <laughs> right? Not, you're not exactly. getting paid today. It's fucking ludicrous. Yeah. The way that people behave but about food. Just, oh, one thing we get at Blackstar a lot is they don't work for tips, so the service sucks. Like that, we see a lot of reviews like that. And I think there's, I mean, there's some truth in, you know, most statements, but I've been a black star and I've gotten, I've gotten personally as an employee, I've gotten poor service before I've been a black star and I've gotten excellent service, like awesome service. And it's the same as true as for customers. So one incident that happens doesn't necessarily justify this big, like bold statement that just because they don't work for tips, they're all, they're all terrible right. servers or they're all terrible employees. It's like, that's just not the case. Some people are, are good at front of house work and some people aren't. Yeah. I mean, I think the tip thing is, it's like, it's so ingrained, like you're saying, it's so ingrained in the culture that it's like, I don't know, it's it's kind of like the, I feel like, I you know, I might get mediocre, sir. I get mediocre service all the time, right? Oh, yeah. I still fucking tip out the same. Yeah. Unless it's just like absolutely, you have to be pretty fucked up yeah. to get a shitty tip from me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll put it that way. And pretty amazing to get, like, a huge tip. I mean, I don't know. I tip, like, 25, you know, something like that. Yeah, I, my my uh My mom and stepfather have a restaurant, actually. So okay. I used to uh, bus tables there. I used to wait tables there, you know. Where's I, that? Uh, it's in Lexington, actually. Oh, okay. So it's, like, an hour and a half out on, you know, off of, like, 290, kind of Giddings-ish area. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I spent my time busting ass in that environment um (laughs) i think it's funny too like i was saying about how people are dicks to servers it's kind of cuts across all socioeconomic status you know what i mean it's like not just like rich people that are coming and treating people like shit like everybody like everybody across the board treats servers like shit well especially (laughs) people that don't have a lot of money right so they go out and they're spending what little money they have, and then it's like you're not doing everything perfectly. Right. One, I don't have the money to give. Two, <laughs> I, yeah. I'm justifying it by being angry at you. And I, I mean, yeah, it's not. It's it. You know, it's it's rich people, it's poor people, it's people that in the middle. It's it's everybody. But it's just this power thing. And I absolutely, mean, it's just a. It's all it is a controlling thing. It's like I'm dictating what you're making tonight, and if I have to, you know, if you want to get a little bit more money let me sexually harass you and it'll be fine <laughs> like it's just such a weird weird dynamic where, oh man you know you can cat call waitresses and then it's like oh cool here's the tip but then you know somebody forget your water and like screw you, you're not making money oh man i didn't even think about that element of it yeah. <laughs> but uh let's go ahead man let's talk a little bit about about brewing 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 brewing, brewing. <laughs> yeah. uh I don't know honestly I don't know shit about it man I'm not I'm not a beer drinker right I'm, I'm a spirits drinker and cool. that's if I drink whiskey I, I'm more of a vodka guy vodka yeah <clears throat> what vodka uh my favorite is actually Ciroc 
but I was drinking it way before P Diddy. Oh yeah. Just yeah, so yeah. everybody knows. Back before it fuck, was cool. Fuck P Diddy jumping on my shit. Did he buy it out or was that not? No, his he's brand? just the he's I don't think he he's just the spokesperson as far as I know. I think he owns it. He eh, I don't know. I have to fucking Google it. Huh. I need okay. a young Jamie to Google that shit. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, we can talk about brewing. A little um, bit. Yeah. Yeah. So uh we you know, at Blackstar, we're a brew pub, and we have, like, a 10-barrel system. It's pretty small. We just brew beers. Uh, like, 90% of the beers that we brew are served on site, and then just a little bit of the beer gets distributed out into the market. Um, I don't know. you want to go over the process at all? Yeah. That... Yeah, let's, I think that would probably, for me, be kind of the most interesting, like, the, yeah. all the, the chemistry and yeah. what have you of it. Yeah, simple overview is, you know, we take uh, malted grain, which is any any grain or you know a number of grains that are uh you can soak in water trick them in to thinking they're planted uh they sprout rootlets and they start releasing energy for growth and then you halt that process the the maltster does not us so uh you halt that process you dry it out and then you kiln it or roast it to a certain degree um so you have different like really lightly kiln malts or like your base malts and then really dark black malts are, are going to be you're like you can that's what makes porters dark and gives the chocolate roasty um coffee notes to it so that's your malt we generally use barley malted barley in brewing although at black star we use wheat rye um and I've, I've played around with a couple of different grains as well but um so you take your grains and you mill them you crush them open so that you have access to all that energy or as it truly is, is like carbohydrates, right? right? Carbohydrates are just big, giant molecules of sugar that are just big branch molecules. So you take that that crushed grain, you steep it with water to perform the mash. So it, you, you mix it with hot water to come up to a specific temperature. Enzymes that are living on the grain break down those carbohydrates, those big sugar molecules into tiny, like single bite, <laughs> for lack of a better term, sugar molecules, so that the yeast can ferment it later on in the process. So that's why the mash is important. You convert those carbohydrates into fermentable sugars. So you run off all that sugar water, which we refer to it uh, as wort in the industry, into a kettle. Uh, you boil the sugar water, um, and then you add hops in the beginning of the boil for bitterness. You add hops at the end of the boil for flavor and aroma. And then you cool it down, send it to a fermentation vessel, add yeast to it. Yeast are single-celled organism. They consume sugar and produce CO2 and alcohol as the two main byproducts. So it bubbles away. I don't know if you've ever seen like a homebrew fermentation. Yeah, definitely. Away. So they consume all the sugar. Uh, they start cleaning up some of the byproducts. And then you, you've you got beer, essentially. I mean, that's very, you know, glossing over the whole process. But that's a very basic um, representation of it. So once you have that, you can uh, cool it down. You can carbonate it. And then you can you can drink it, essentially. Tell me what what the fuck are hops? <laughs> <laughs> hops, yeah, hops are um, they're a flower of a vine that look they're like. I mean, I've seen on TV. Yeah, it's they look like little green pine cones, like a like little bud sort cone. of almost. Yeah, 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 exactly. So they're they're bud off vines and uh, they are extremely aromatic and flavorful, but they also contain a chemical or a molecule that is um, when boiled is is activated for you know all intents and purposes in, into a bitter compound so uh you put them in there for for bitterness and then they're also extremely aromatic and flavorful so we we add them at the end of the boil we dry hop with them so like ipas if you've ever had like if you like ipas or not those big bold like pine resin fruity uh tropical fruit characters those all come from hops so they're extremely versatile, and you know, people right now in craft beer are just crazy, crazy, crazy for hops, and they have been for years. But um, they're, IPA is the number one selling beer in the world, in the country, and it has for for craft beer, and it has been for many years. So people love their hops. Did uh, I f feel like I had read that IPAs were big in India? So IPA stands for India Pale Ale. The history of it is kind of hazy, but the story goes that when the English colonized India, they would ship beer over and you know in barrels on ships, and the journey was so long that they. One thing I didn't mention because it's not really practical 
um, in modern brewing, but it is, you know, historically kind of cool. Hops, not only do they, they provide bitterness to beer, so they balance out the sweetness, but they're also antimicrobial. So the, the components in there are, they inhibit growth of, of microbes that would spoil or infect beer. And so they added more hops to these these oh, okay. beers for the journey, for right. the journey to, to make them last. And so that's kind of where the India Pale Ale uh, term comes from. But then Americans totally bastardized it and just hopped the shit out of everything. So it's its, its own... Uh, and I don't. I think maybe they're like becoming popular in India, but they were never like a. Like <laughs> right. Indians weren't drinking <laughs> India pale ales. Gotcha. I think I might have caught that on Wikipedia or some <laughs> shit. Fake news or something. Fake news for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Have you so? Have you ever? I mean, what what can you do? You ever like do ex, kind of experiment with different All the time. mixtures? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, I guess you would have to, right? Yeah, so I think the number one question I get when I give brewery tours is, do you do you ever ruin a beer? Like that's like the number one question, and then the number two question is like, well, like do you ever do ex- experiments? Um, so uh, yes, beers get ruined, and also <laughs> we we are such a small system that basically every batch of beer, <clears throat> except for the ones that we brew year round, are pretty much experiments into themselves. So you're like, you know, they're one off beers. We have a pretty good grasp on like recipe formulation, so we we know what the grains are going to do, right? So, okay, we've got that down. And we know what we want for bitterness, so we say, okay, that's what we're going to do there. And then <clears throat> we, um, and then if we hit all of those numbers, then we can kind of estimate what fermentation is going to do. So we have a pretty good idea of how each step is going to go before we do anything. So um, when we formulate a new recipe or we try something out, we have a lot of data to pull from to say, hey, this is going to work or this right. is not going to work. So we experiment all the time, but they generally don't like turn out as duds. The only time that you get something that kind of doesn't work is if uh, one example, we do kettle souring a lot where we basically sour a beer within a couple of days. Um, and then we treat it like a regular beer after that. And we had a batch go, <clears throat> go pretty bad one time where it got infected with something as we were souring it basically smelled like uh, foot cheese. <laughs> so terrible. Had, yeah. Had to dump that. <laughs> um, and, and then after that, if you have like poor yeast, um, like the yeast quality isn't there and fermentation can stall out. So if it's eating all that sugar and creating alcohol and like halfway through it says, fuck this, I'm not doing it anymore. You're kind of screwed. So you have to scramble and figure out what to do there. So, um, luckily that hasn't happened to us, but, um, it, it does happen all the time. That kind of makes me, makes me want to ask like, what's the, what's the yeast market like? Like, <laughs> That's a good question, I would, obviously, there's got to be That's a really higher, good higher That's and lower um, quality yeast. I mean, <laughs> so where, uh, like, what's the? Do you even know, like, what's the sourcing on the yeast? Yeah, so there's three main uh, yeast providers that that I'm aware that I've used. Um, so there's White Labs out of California. There's Wide Yeast out of I don't know, and there's <laughs> uh, BSI or the Brewer, Brewer Science Institute that provide. Um, I would say the majority of yeast for craft breweries and if not like larger breweries as well, but this is just my experience. Um, and they, they're laboratories, right? So they propagate yeast. So they isolate individual strains of yeast and there's thousands of them. There's tons of different, different yeast strains that, that have, I mean, there's yeast in the air right now as we're talking, they're, they're everywhere. So they isolate these strains that produce different characteristics, right? So maybe one of them eats all the sugar and they, they're really, really attenuative, meaning they're, they're, they're eating all of that sugar up and producing a bunch of alcohol. And then maybe one of them doesn't do that very much, but it produces a bunch of fruity characters. So they isolate these strains at these different laboratories and then they propagate them up or they build a, a large colony and then they package them and they send them off to breweries. And they also do it for, for home brewers as well. So you can go to Austin Homebrew or um, like Soco Homebrew over here and just go and pick up a little you know, pack it yeast, or pack much, of yeast yeah. and, and uh, pitch it into your beer. And traditionally, like a lot of people think of dry yeast, like the stuff you sprinkle into bread when you're making it. Right. That's not what we use, but that is also a thing. Some people use dry yeast in the brewing industry, but uh, for the most part, it's like fresh, um, wet yeast that comes in and, you know, totally aseptic pouches that are sanitary and all you get is like pure yeast culture. So then you, you can ferment your beer and kind of have a good idea of how it's going to turn out. 
have you ever fucked or, or had any interest in any kind of other alcohol production like distillation or you know or even brewing other types of stuff because i you know like what soy sauce is brewed for example you know or like sake or something yeah yeah um uh, yeah i i'm interested in pretty much anything pretty much in how anything's made so I, i've done like research on on pretty much anything that i've consumed and been like oh this is super interesting um distillation i actually have a friend that uh, works at Revolution Spirits. He, his name is Brian. He, you know, has been distilling in his backyard illegally for, <laughs> or was <laughs> doing that. He doesn't do that anymore for sure. hundred percent, no illegal actions going on. <laughs> uh, but he was, he was doing that and that, you know, that kind of piqued my interest into different spirits and stuff. And yeah, it's super interesting. I've met a few distillers since I've been a brewer that have like come in and we've like talked about different processes and, and like potentially working together and using their barrels and, Stuff like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm super interested in that. And I love whiskey. I, I drink whiskey primarily outside of work. So like bourbon or scot like Scotch whiskey. I've, I I love Scotch, but bourbon's cheaper. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, really any yeah rye, bourbon, Scotch, Irish whiskey. Any man, I feel uh, Revolution. I feel like they Revolution make gin. Do they? They also do Cafecito. I feel like I bought one of their Bloody Mary mixes or something. Because hmm. I know there's an, there's an Austin company that makes these really badass Bloody Mary mixes. Because that's kind of my, my jam is Bloody, Bloody Marys, Marys in particular. Like, I don't know if they do that. That's like my favorite thing to drink. Uh, but it was like they have a, they have like a T-bone steak flavor. They have like oh, that's not them. pickle yeah. flavor. <laughs> they have like a wasabi flavor. And it, it's, a, it's a local company that makes these. Hmm. And they're pretty fucking good. Yeah, I like a good Bloody Mary. All, uh, I'm trying to think somebody around here who, uh, any place in particular you get Bloody Marys at? I'm trying to think. I really like the ones at, um, there's a restaurant at the bottom of the Westin that I can't remember the, the name of. Oh, Stella San Jack. Theirs okay. are pretty good. Okay. Just their straight up Bloody Mary. Is it like Frank? Does Frank have a good Bloody Mary? I think they put Frank's, a lot of shit in it. Frank's? Yeah, they have, they'll give you, they give you like a piece of, uh, cheese and, a fucking piece of bacon but i don't know i don't like theirs that much because okay. it's a sweeter flavor it's not i i really like the smoky heavy flavor peppery yeah exactly yeah, I, I mean that. you know like the traditional zing zang shit that you can buy yeah, at heb yeah. what <laughs> i'll do is great what i'll do is i'll take a little bit of uh, sriracha actually and put it in there and that'll gives it that spiciness mm. that i really like like spicy food i i mean i'm not too too crazy about it but I like a little bit, you know what I mean? Just enough to get it where it, it adds a little bit to the flavor, but it's not overwhelming where I'm like crying and my nose is running. Yeah. I've been... So I don't know, like wasabi might be, wasabi is probably like a little bit that's pushing it oh, really? a little yeah. bit beyond my comfort zone. <laughs> I've been on a kick lately and I've just been trying to burn myself out for like the last year. So went to the Austin Hot Sauce Festival last weekend. Oh yeah. Was that last week? Yeah. So went down to Fiesta Gardens and, um, we ate a Carolina Reaper after the festival and just got destroyed my stomach. I was just bent over for like 30 <laughs> minutes sweating, yeah. wanting to throw up on my friend's couch. That was cool. There's a place, uh, fuck, it's on Riverside. Damn it, I can't remember the name of the fucking bar. But they've got a habanero-infused vodka. Hmm. And I've had one of their Bloody Marys, and that was kind of, that was rough. It was kind of like, yeah. you get that little, like, at the like kind of the base of your throat that little burning sensation Especially where you're like drinking it and it just coats everything going down exactly so th that was probably a little bit outside of what i prefer but you know not too bad nonetheless yeah, yeah. but uh andy if man i think we're coming up on an hour um you have anything any parting notes you want to or things you want to talk about no i think i mean I'm I'm on my third beer. I'm almost done with that. So just killing them, man. Yeah, I just gotta roll through this last one. But uh, no, it's been good so far. It's good good talk, man. Yeah, I appreciate appreciate you coming out to tonight and and doing this. Uh, I'll I'll close on this. This is a pretty good piece of trivia for you. So, I was actually born in Shiner, Texas. Okay. So in Shiner, um, which is really funny because, dude, I remember like when I was growing up, Shiner Bach was like the trash beer yeah that people bought on the cheap and then it's funny it's like then like you know 
10 15 years later it's like became sort of the pretty popular i think as people started to as americans started to kind of move towards that darker beer mm-hmm. and sort of probably the the early days of when people started to kind of things started to switch around and go that direction then it became kind of this premium more of a quote-unquote premium thing yeah which i thought was kind of funny yeah the the craft beer movement definitely uh well they, i mean they're also everywhere yeah they're they're huge <laughs> like you think they are a craft brewery but they're the biggest one in the state for sure actually I well i mean i don't know not. if i would consider them craft but i just yeah. thought it was funny that you know it's like i'm i'm born born there they don't live in a hospital there anymore yeah actually yeah it shut yeah, down it's like... like all the brewery <laughs> it's like the whole town <laughs> it's just them producing china rock pretty much uh, those commercials are pretty funny dude it's uh, i don't know if you've seen the one where they have uh, i guess the guy that runs the brewery there yeah that yeah the they guy had a campaign the within the last like year just, he's like cheering yeah, yeah that yeah, guy yeah, yes that guy. i thought those were fucking hilarious because they're like they, they really capture kind of what those people are like because it's a lot of in that area it's a lot of like german and czech immigrants settled yeah. there yeah 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 my and, family's czech right on so it, it's kind of funny to see that campaign um and one of my friends actually from college ended up being in one of those commercials i'm kind of sitting here and I see him, and I'm like, holy shit, that's fucking Everett there, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But, uh, man, I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap up for the evening. Thanks for uh, coming out and getting schizoid, man. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime.